Take your Bible and open to John 20. Well, that's where we are this morning. John chapter 20, we're coming to this portion of Scripture for a, a second time here in the Gospel of John. John 20. And when we come to this portion of Scripture uh, in, in this text, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead has already occurred. It is a fact of history. Uh, this is a, an uh, after-the-fact account. Now, the truth is nobody witnessed the actual resurrection. What we have here, therefore, is a detailed uh, account surrounding uh, the events after the resurrection, what people saw, uh, how they interacted with it, their initial response uh, to it, etc., and so forth. And as I've said previously, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important point of all of human history, the most important event of all of human history, because it is the indisputable proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and the indisputable reality of life is every one of us, every man who's ever lived, ever been born, uh, someday each and every one of us, our life's going to come to an end. John 14, 1 says, man who is born of a woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower, he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not remain. Psalm 89, verse 48, what man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol or the power of the grave? Uh, Psalm 90, verse 10, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. The unmistakable reality of life in a fallen world is the reality of death. One writer uh, says this, he says, no man is wise enough to outwit death or wealthy enough to purchase freedom from death or strong enough to vanquish death. The grave always wins the victory in every person sooner or later, and every person sooner or later returns to the dust. Death is man's greatest enemy, and it has been conquered. It has conquered all men but the man Jesus Christ, right? Death is all men's greatest enemy, but it has been conquered by the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, again, that's the great hope that we have. If you look at history, you look at all the great men of history and all the great men of history who've impacted this world, either good men or evil men, they have all died. Every man who's made a profound impact upon the world, uh, Alexander the Great, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Julius Caesar, uh, Abraham Lincoln, Charles Darwin, Karl Marx, the Wright brothers, Winston Churchill, Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, on and on it goes, right? Every man in this world, both good and man, all men of history have died. And all men have died, and death has been the victor with the exception of this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's alive forevermore. Amen? That is such an encouraging truth. The truth is he lived a real life in a real body and died a real death, was buried like all men, but all, unlike all men, all other men, he returned from the dead. Resurrected. He resurrected his once uh, spiritual or physically dead body. He came out of the tomb to live forever. And therefore, he is the one man that all men need to know because the Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then what? Comes the judgment. No one's escaping death. Again, the stark reality is every person born, every man or woman born, every one of us in this room is destined to have an appointment with the day that none of us wants to keep, and that's the appointment of the day of your death. 
And the only ones who in this world have confidence to face that day of death that is coming are those who have repented and placed their faith in this one person, this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who defeated sin and death. The greatest miracle, the greatest uh, point of human history since the creation itself is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which again could not have been a, accomplished if he was anything other than who he claimed to be, that is God come in the flesh. And again, the resurrection from, of Jesus Christ from the dead is a very uh, cornerstone of Christianity. Again, there is no Christianity, there's no Christian faith apart from the historical reality of the person of Jesus Christ. And of all the other world's religions, none of them uh, claim that their founder defeated death except uh, Christianity and the person of Jesus Christ. So God in his kindness has left for all men, but I think especially for us uh, as believers, and I really believe this, God has left for us as believers uh, the, the truth. He's left for us these gospel accounts that we're looking through the of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that again it contains eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that always presents uh, that fact as fact. It always presents the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is always presented as historical truth, not myth, not legend, not allegory. In fact, one of the men who examined the uh, evidence historically very carefully was a man named Luke. Now, you know of him. He was a physician. He says in Luke 1, 3, he says, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, he says that Jesus Christ, Acts 1, 3, presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing over a 40-day uh, over a period of 40 days. So if Jesus Christ didn't come back from the dead, uh, not only is this man Luke and his claims, not only are they false, but the entire New Testament is completely uh, unreliable because the repeated claim of the New Testament is that Jesus Christ defeated death. And on top of that, Jesus was either a fool or someone with some kind of very serious mental uh, problem because in the New Testament, he never predicted his death without claiming that he would rise from the dead. Now, stating that you're going to die is nothing um, more than just stating the obvious, but stating that you're going to die, you're going to be buried, and then you're going to come back from the dead after three days, that's quite unusual, uh, to say the least, and Jesus said that repeatedly. Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes be killed and be raised up on the third day. Matthew 17, verse 22, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew 20, verse 18, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. You read in Mark 8, 31, uh, Mark uh, 10, 34, Luke 9, 22, uh, 1833, 24, verse 7, John 2, 19. They all say basically the same thing. That Jesus is going to suffer many things, be killed, but then he would ra be raised up uh, on the third day. And, and because he made that claim so often, uh, his enemies were aware of this. And, and we'll see that here just in a moment. Therefore, the enemies of the Lord Jesus are going to uh, persuade the Roman authorities to take uh, strict security measures to seal the tomb so that no one could come in and steal the body and fake his resurrection. Now again, the events surrounding the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ are presented to all men that men might have hope. Enemies to death, it's coming for all, men need hope. 
Uh, again, John writes, I, I've, I've repeated it hundreds of times going through this, uh, this gospel. Uh, John 20 and 31. These things have been written that you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have what? Life in his name. Right? This is why this is written down. God desires that men would have life and not perish. Therefore, God wants to draw your attention. The, the gospel writer John wants to draw your attention to this blessed person, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. For only a fool or the devil himself would deny the literal, historical, physical, bodily resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ is mankind's only hope of reconciliation with God. And Jesus Christ is mankind's only hope of defeating death. Now, there's a tremendous amount of evidence that points to the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, I would go as far as saying that there's no historical event in ancient history that has so much a different documented testimony validating the historical reality of the facts surrounding the event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But also, as I told you last time, belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is really a supernatural thing. It's not something that's just based on evidence alone. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the, the Word, right? By the Word of God, the Word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. The Bible says again, the natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. First uh, Corinthians 2, verse 14. Listen. We will never convince an unbeliever of the historical reality, the historical validity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We will not do that. We do not have that kind of power. That's something that God must do through his word, through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's something that God does. There, there's nothing new, nothing modern nothing expressly intellectual, nothing expressly scientific about unbelief in the person of Jesus Christ and unbelief in the historical resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ from the dead because unbelief in the person of Christ, unbelief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ was something that was going on in the first century every bit as much as it's going on today. There's nothing new about unbelief. Unbelief, again, is not intellectual. Unbelief is not a matter of a lack of information or a lack of knowledge. Unbelief is not a matter of evidence or lack thereof. Unbelief is always prejudiced hostility towards the truth. Unbelief is always prejudiced hostility towards the truth. It's a rejection of the truth. And unbelief blinds men to the obvious. But belief is a gift. And the fact that we believe is evidence of God's tremendous grace and his kindness and his mercy to us. And I cannot overestimate uh, uh, or overemphasize that reality. If you're a believer here this morning and you believe in the historical person of Jesus Christ and you believe in the historical resurrection, the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ, that's a gift. That's a gift of God's kindness. Because God in his, in his mercy has taken away your spiritual blindness and he's allowed you to look with eyes that see to look on the glory of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says by grace, for by grace man is saved through faith, not of himself. 
It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, not as, as a result of men figuring it out, right? That no one should boast. Salvation is always by grace through faith, and it's the gift of God's kindness, God who's rich in mercy, uh, a God who has a great love for us. He has opened our blind eyes uh, to see the glory of his dear son. But again, no man will ever see the glory of the person of Christ in, in, uh, in mercy unless he humbles himself before God, admits the fact that he's a sinner, desperately in need of that grace that God offers freely, desperately in need of the only person who can save him and defeat death, that being the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, I just said it, but I'm going to say it again. While men may mock the resurrection, deny the resurrection, reject the resurrection, listen to me, only a fool or the devil himself would deny or want to explain away the resurrection. Why? Because every man is under the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is what? Everyone's going there. The only hope that you have, the only hope that anyone else has to defeat death for forgiveness of sin, salvation, comes if Jesus Christ literally, physically, historically defeated death and rose from the dead. And here's the good news. What? He has. He has. This is written to encourage your heart. If you're a believer in the person of God, through the person of God, the person of Jesus Christ, this is God's kindness to you. You should rejoice in that. We focus way too much on trying to convince the unbeliever. We don't have that power. We should focus on the reality of the fact that God in his kindness, in his mercy, why, I don't know, because he's merciful, has opened our eyes to receive the truth. And we should rejoice in that fact. Now, the last time we were together, we were in here, John chapter uh, 20, and uh, I, I read the 10, or I think I read first uh, 20 verses, but today I'm just going to go back. We're going to read through the first 10 just to do a quick review, and, and then look, because there are many more things packed in these first 10 verses uh, that we really didn't have a, a chance to get to last time. And all, along the way, I'm going to kind of take you back and forth a couple other uh, gospel accounts, um, because I just want, to see, want you to see the bigger picture, so don't, don't be, uh, be, you be, you be patient with me when we're going back and forth, all right? Here we go, John 20, verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb, while it was still dark, and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead, or ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, and entering the tomb, and beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and saw and believed, for yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their homes." Now, again, I told you last time, the first line of evidence for the historical resurrection of the person of Jesus Christ is the fact the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. He's not there in the tomb. Now, the reality of the fact was Jesus really was dead. 
Fact of history is Jesus was dead. He was beaten, he was mocked, and he was scourged brutally. Uh, you might remember that was a punishment that they literally uh, took this whip with all these kind of things on the end of the whip, and they literally filleted his flesh on his back. It would expose muscle, perhaps even internal organs. Uh, that would leave the skin on his back kind of hanging literally like long ribbons. Uh, just an unrecognizable mass uh, of bleeding tissue. And then they crucified him. Again, an excessively cruel, uh, torturous death. They put nails in his hands and the feet, and they hang him uh, on a piece of wood, and the victim, the victim hung there naked and exposed the elements. He was uh, humiliated, and eventually, over a period of time, the victim would die a slow death by way of suffocation. The confirmation of the death of the person of Jesus is made by the Roman soldiers, who again are professional executioners, who killed thousands and thousands of people on, uh, on the cross. They confirm the fact that Jesus is dead by not breaking his legs because they come to him and he's dead already, right? They wanted to break the legs of the other two men or they did break the legs of the other two men to get him off the, uh, off the cross on, the, on this uh, uh, day, uh, holy day because the high priest didn't want them uh, to remain there so, so the men could not push back upon the nails on their feet and, and draw a breath. They broke the legs, but again, they come to Jesus and he's already dead. Then they thrust a spear into his side and there's no signs of life. That death thrust, again, is another evidence that Jesus is dead there on the cross. Then the Roman authorities give the body of Jesus to a man named Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, he's a rich man who's a secret disciple of uh, Christ, along with another man, Nicodemus, uh, who courageously, they both ally themselves with Christ uh, in his death, and they take care of his body, prepare it for burial. Again, if there had been any signs of life left in that body, the body of Christ, uh, that body would, one, have been given to Joseph for, for burial, and most certainly Joseph and Nicodemus would not have wrapped the body of, uh, of uh, the Lord Jesus in those burial cloths and, and uh, uh, taken this process, this mixture. I told you it was about 100 pounds of fragrant spices with a kind of a gummy substance called myrrh, and the body is wrapped repeatedly with this linen cloth. They, they literally enclose the body because they're trying to mitigate the smell of the corruption uh, of the decaying body, because in this culture, the, uh, the Jews don't embalm. Now, Matthew, in his version, Matthew 27, verse 57, says this, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And it's interesting in the, in the context of that, asked for really is literally he begs for the body of Christ. That's the implication. He begs Pilate for the body of Christ. Now, Pilate really has no earthly reason to give uh, the body, to surrender the body of Christ to uh, uh, Joseph. Uh, Joseph is not a relative. Uh, criminals normally uh, are usually just left to rot on a Roman cross, or if they were taken down, they were discarded in, in the local garbage pit at the end of town. But in God's providence and his kindness towards his son, uh, God providentially is at work using a uh, uh, the actions of uh, uh, these wicked men, Pilate and his associates, uh, so that his, the, the body of his dear son is properly uh, cared for. And again, God has these two men, uh, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, to take care of the body. Matthew 28, verse 57 continues, says, when Pilate ordered it, uh, Then Pilate ordered it to be given over to him, and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, laid it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn out in the rock. He rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Again, if there's any sign of life, if there's any suggestion 
that these men were expecting Jesus was going to rise from the dead. These men would not have bound his body in these wrappings, put him in a tomb, and then sealed it with a large stone across the entrance and then gone home. But they did. Why is that? Because Jesus Christ is, he's dead. Everybody knows that. And what everybody else knows is something pretty obvious, but the reality is dead men stay except this man. Dead men stay dead except this one man of history, Jesus Christ. Now, again, these men are not participants in any kind of resurrection hoax. They're not, uh, uh, that's not anywhere in their minds. Again, the disciples aren't thinking about that. They're nowhere to be found. The ladies who show up early at the tomb Sunday morning, they're not thinking about any of this either. Look at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, right, John 20, verse 1, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came earlier to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So out of love, Mary Magdalene and a number of other women who the other writers uh, and the gospel writers tell us about have come to the tomb early in the morning not to see a resurrection, but they've come to anoint a corpse. They're not, they're not expecting a resurrection, and that's advanced. That truth is evidenced by the fact that they brought spices to anoint a dead body. If they believed otherwise, they would have not brought spices to the tomb, uh, but they do, because they, at this moment, again, they don't understand the promise of the resurrection. And while they've come out of love to anoint the uh, the body of the person of Jesus Christ, I told you last time, along the way, uh, according to Mark 16, 3, uh, they suddenly realize there's a problem. Mark 16, 3, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Again, they've come out of love and devotion to the person uh, of Jesus. They want to anoint the body of Christ, but they haven't fully thought through their plan. Uh, they don't know how they're going to move the stone. Uh, they anticipate they're going to see, they're going to uh, need some help. And that's a very important point that John's drawing our attention to is the stone. The stone's gone. So the question is, who moves the stone? Who, who indeed is going to move the stone? Now, openings of these kind of rock tombs uh, at the time of Christ were somewhere between four and a half to five feet tall. Therefore, it's estimated by some that the size of the stone that would have been big enough to roll against this kind of an opening would have weighed somewhere between one and a half to two tons, which is somewhere between three and 4,000 pounds. In fact, Mark 16, verse 4, actually describes the stone as extremely large, megasophadra, exceedingly great. In fact, some writers suggest that the stone that was put in place as a protective barrier against men and animals from entering in the tomb that perhaps this tomb that was originally hewn out for this uh, rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, maybe this stone was even larger than what it would have normally been to, again, protect uh, uh, the, the body there in the tomb. In fact, there is an, uh, one portion of an ancient uh, Biza uh, manuscript in the Cambridge Library in England that has a parenthetical statement to Mark 16.4. So, so it's not inspired but it's something that somewhere along the line a scribe has written, and, and he's written it out in the margin describing the stone. And here's the, the comment concerning the stone. It says, which 20 men could not roll away. Now, again, when you consider the rules of transcribing man manuscripts, it, it was the custom of the copier to emphasize his own interpretation. He would put his thought out in the margin uh, and not include it in the text. Therefore, it's been surmised 
that perhaps this insertion uh, on the side of the, of the text here was copied by me from somebody else previously, who copied it from someone else previously, even perhaps a first century manuscript, uh, perhaps even uh, recorded by an eyewitness who's so impressed with the enormity of the size of the stone uh, rolled against the sepulcher where the body of Christ laid. It's a big stone. Uh, again, it, it's not divinely inspired, this little marginal note, but it tells you again, the stone is rather large. So then I guess the next question would be, well, who indeed did move that stone if it's so big? How did Joseph and Nicodemus move it into place, uh, move it in the, into the right spot in the first place? Well, the answer is in, in these kind of uh, stone caves, uh, they, these stones were placed on a ledge that had a slight angle. And there was a wedge that was put to keep that uh, stone in place. And so in this groove or in this trench that kind of sloped down a little bit in front of the tomb, all that these two men had to do was pull that wedge out. And gravity would do the rest. Gravity would bring the stone back in, in the right place in, in, uh, uh, in front of the tomb and, and block the tomb up. So that extremely large stone uh, was placed over again, uh, again, over intentionally over again, uh, the face of the, the opening uh, so that nothing or no one could get in there. Now the fact that the stone is rolled away and now there's entrance gained to what's inside the tomb is again another evidence that Jesus is gone. It's another historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's not in the tomb. Especially when you factor in the fact that I told you the enemies uh, of Christ, the Jewish re uh, religious leaders, have taken extra special precautions and conspired to create a scenario that make it possible, uh, make it impossible to carry out any kind of deception, faking a resurrection by somebody coming and stealing the body of Christ. I told you in an act of utter hypocrisy, the uh, Jewish religious leaders, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gather in the presence of uh, Pilate on the high day, on the, uh, on the Sabbath, the Passover, Passover Sabbath there, and, and, and they request that the tomb where Jesus is laid would be secured. It would be secured with guards. It would be, uh, uh, somebody would be posted there at the entrance, and it would be sealed. Uh, just to make sure, again, no one could come and steal away the body and claim that Jesus had been raised from the dead. So put a mark there in your uh, Bible, and we'll come right back. But go back to Matthew. Matthew 27, and I want you to see it. Matthew 27, verse 62. Matthew 27, verse 62. Now, on the next day, again, which would have been Saturday, or the Passover Sabbath, which is the one after the preparation day, which would have been Friday when he was crucified. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Verse 64, Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Now, as I told you, the religious leaders don't fear the disciples coming and stealing away the body of Christ. They actually fear the person of Jesus Christ defeating death. Because throughout his entire ministry, they've seen his power, his supernatural divine power, repeatedly, over and over again. 
and they had just seen him raise Lazarus of Bethany from the dead, John chapter 11, uh, again, which is an undeniable fact, dead in the tomb four days, Jesus calls him to life, and they, they saw that just days before they murdered Jesus. Verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go make it as secure as you know, and they went and made the grave secure along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, you have a guard, or maybe some of your translation says you have a watch, or you have soldiers. Uh, according to linguistics uh, experts, uh, 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 language experts, that probably should be taken as an imperative and not an indicative. You go, what's the difference? Well, an imperative is a command, and an indicative is just uh, a statement of fact. Okay? He's not saying, well, you have a guard. No, he's saying, you have a guard. He's, he's really saying, you take a guard. I'm going to give you a guard. I'm going to grant the request. And it's got to be a, not the temple guard, but it's got to really be the, the Roman soldiers that Pilate is giving because the Romans would not have allowed the temple guards to discharge any duties outside the temple. So you have a guard. You go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the, sto the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, the Roman seal uh, stands as a mark, serves as a mark of authentication a way to prove that something is genuine, something is real. And, and this Roman seal that was placed on the tomb of Jesus not, uh, also warned any potential grave robbers that you should think twice because this grave is being guarded, uh, it's uh, being protected by the power of Rome. And it's also a verification of the fact, an authentic, uh, 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 authentication of the fact that Jesus' body is indeed actually there in that tomb. Right? They're not just going to go put a seal in a tomb, some, place, some tomb. They're not just going to put guards wherever. They're actually going to put it in at the tomb where Jesus was actually laid. And again, this tomb, this body is being protected by the power and the authority uh, of the Roman Empire. There's a little, uh, again, a massive stone placed over the entrance, and the Roman seal was placed uh, uh, across it uh, with, uh, along with the Roman guard. So what they would do is they would melt some wax and put wax on one side, put a string across it, put wax on the other side, and they take some kind of signet to say this is the official uh, marking of the Roman Empire. And so if anybody moves the stone, the, the, the uh, seal is broken, the string breaks, and everybody knows that there was an attempt to steal the body. And let me say something about the guard. So you got the, the tomb sealed, and then you got a Roman guard there. Historically, a Roman guard would have been somewhere between four to 16 men. And each of these men were supposed to protect six feet of ground. So 16 men lined up in, in a square four on each side. They were supposed to be able to protect 36 yards against uh, an entire battalion and, and hold on to it. And normally what they do is they place four men uh, immediately in front of whatever they were protecting or guarding. And then the other 12 during the night, they would take sleep. Uh, they would be in a kind of a semicircle in front of them with their heads pointing inward. So in order for a thief to come and steal what the guards were supposing to be supposed to be protecting, they would have to overcome the first four men and then walk through those other 12 men that are sleeping. And every four hours, another four men were awakened, and those who would awake would go back to sleep, and they would rotate this throughout the entire night around the clock. So you have a severe force. You have a formidable force of highly trained fighting men that need to be overcome for men just to walk in and take whatever is in, in the tomb, roll the stone back, even if you could move the stone and, and, and then steal the body of Christ. And on top of that, if a Roman soldier failed to carry out his duty uh, to guard what they had been entrusted to protect, if, or if they lost a prisoner, 
then they would pay, the Roman guard would pay with that, for that error with their life by being burned alive. So I guess you could say these guys, these Roman soldiers, were highly motivated to uh, keep track of what they were supposed to be guarding and not let it happen, not let anybody come and steal what they were guarding. And again, highly motivated not to fall asleep because then they would face that same kind of punishment. But again, in our text, it says in John 21, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene comes early to the tomb. While it's still dark, she sees the stone already rolled away. Now again, Mary nor the other women who come with her to the tomb have any idea that there's a Roman guard at the tomb. Why? Because Jesus is dead on Friday, put in the tomb on Friday. Saturday is the Sabbath. They are not around. Again, in the hypocrisy of the Roman or the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders, they would not go in to see Pilate on Friday, but they're more than willing to go in and see Pilate on Saturday to carry out their, their scheme here. So the women don't know when they come to the tomb, there's a Roman guard. The women don't know that there's a seal been placed over it. Uh, again, that occurs on Saturday. They've just come here because of their love for the person of Christ very early on Sunday morning to take care of the body before the corruption makes it uh, unmanageable. And Mary runs ahead of the other women. She arrives first. She's surprised to see the stone is already taken away. The stone's already removed from the tomb. Now, she doesn't know how. She doesn't know what caused it, but that's what's happened. Now, Matthew, in his version, if you just keep going on a little bit further down to Matthew 28, look at Matthew 28, verse 2. Matthew says a severe earthquake had occurred for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it, and his appearance was like lightning. His garment was white as snow. Now, the angel did not roll away the stone to let Jesus out of the tomb. By the time the angel appears, Jesus is already gone. He's already been resurrected. He's already risen. He has the power to raise himself up from the dead. He doesn't need the angel to move the stone to let him out. He has the authority to lay down his life. He has the, the, the power to lay down his life. We talked about that. He has the power to take his life back up again. And that's exactly what he did. The, the angel moves the stone not to let Jesus out. The angel moves the stone to let the world in. To let the world in. For the world to see the tomb is empty. Verse 4 of the text says, The guards shook for fear and became like dead men. So the, the, the Roman guards become paralyzed with fear. They're full of uh, terror at the sight of the angels. When it says they shook for fear, the word shook is the same word that's used for earthquake. So these guards, you can imagine in the context, these guards have a little mini personal earthquake, if you will, and they're the shaking uncontrollably. Uh, they're completely traumatized by what they've seen. You would assume that perhaps they're even unconscious at this time uh, for, for a period of time. Uh, powerless uh, 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 like dead men. Now, don't turn there yet, but let me kind of take us back because we're going to stay here in Matthew just for a moment. But back to the context of, uh, of uh, John. Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone rolled away, already rolled away and taken from the tomb. Verse 2 says, So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciples whom Jesus loved. Again, that would be John, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him, right? Again, they're looking for a body. Now, again, her reaction uh, says that she still believes that Jesus is dead, right, where they have laid him, but he's been taken. Her reaction, again, shows she's not expecting a resurrection. Uh, her reaction shows she's not part of some elaborate uh, hoax by the disciples to steal the body of Christ and, and feign a resurrection either. 
Now, in the meantime, while Mary is running back in our John context to Peter and John, the other women that are with her arrive at the tomb. And when the other women that arrive at the tomb, then the angel appears to them. So look down at verse 5, Matthew 28, verse 5. The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who has been crucified. I know you're looking for a corpse. I know you're looking for a dead body, but you're not going to find one here. Why is that? Verse 6, he's not here, for he has risen. Right? He has, been, he has risen. He's been recalled from death to life. And then he says, just as he said. Again, numerous occasions, Jesus said this was going to happen. And it's come true, exactly as he said. Now, at this moment, the, the, the women, nor the disciples, again, understand the reality of the resurrection. But then the invitation by the angels come. Come and see. Come look for yourself. Come see the place where he was lying. Again, verse 6, he's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he's lying. Verse 7, and go quickly tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. Uh, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And again, this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, in the upper room, the night he was betrayed, he said, after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So the promise of the resurrection and uh, uh, these women, the disciples, is that they're going to be eyewitnesses of this reality. He said it was going to happen. It's happened. And now these women and, and the disciples are, res- are, are, are witnesses to the, to the uh, evidence of the, of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. Go quickly tell his disciples that he has risen, been, he has risen from the dead. And go behold, And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And again, it's exactly what God says is going to happen. That's exactly what happens because God is true. He can't lie. And so the glorious angel appears to these ladies and they become commissioned to take the hope, the reality of the resurrection. They're the commissioned ones to take to declare the truth to the disciples first and then eventually to the world. Now again, remember this. No one ever secular or religious, friend or foe, no one has ever denied the empty tomb. Right? No one has ever denied, the best of my ability, the fact of the empty tomb. Because again, what the enemies of Christ are going to say is that the disciples stole the body. No one has ever denied the historical reality that the tomb is empty. I think that's important. Stones rolled away, the seal's been broken, the soldiers are asleep or AWOL at this time. Tomb is empty. All speaks to the historical reality of the resurrection. There's a man named Tom Anderson, who was the former president of the California Trial, Law- Trial Lawyers Association, who co-authored uh, the basic uh, advocacy manual of the Association of Trial Lawyers in America, and he says this. He says, let's assume that Christ did not rise from the dead. Let's assume that the written accounts of his appearances to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose the question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? Listen, I saw the tomb. I uh, it was not empty. Uh, I, I was there. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. His body was uh, in the tomb. I saw it. As a matter of fact, it kind of says in that kind of a tone. 
Anderson says, look, the silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The evidence of silence. The evidence of silence screams out to the reality of an empty tomb, the reality of the historical, literal, physical resurrection, because no one has ever said the tomb was not empty. Everybody said the tomb's empty. Stones rolled away. Everybody has that. The seal's broken. Again, the soldiers are gone. The tomb's empty. No one has ever said Jesus was not raised. He's still dead. I saw him. All the the opponents of the resurrection story have said is somebody has what? Stolen his body. The lack of one person of history saying, no, I actually saw it, screams loudly to the validity of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. These are the women to report it to his disciples. Again, so they encounter an angel, and women's hearts are filled with, as you would expect, fear and then great joy, emotions that are commonly present for people who have these kind of encounters in the Bible uh, when they come into the presence of God. Now go back to John 20. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb. While it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb, verse 2, she ran and came to Simon Peter, the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. Some, somebody has done this tomb. They've taken away. Someone's done. Robbers, grave robbers, I don't know. Somebody's taken. They've stolen the body. And we, probably the other women, we do not know where they have laid him. Not looking for a live person, looking for a corpse. We don't know where they laid him. Again, Mary still thinks he's dead. She's speaking about his body being gone. Again, they don't know where they have laid him. She wants to find this dead corpse of her beloved Jesus so she can care for him and honor him. And again, she has forgotten, again, just like the others, the repeated prediction from the person of Christ that he would raise from the dead. I thought to myself, you know, how, how much are we just like them in the story, of the women or the disciples? How many times have we heard the Lord say something in his word to us that we either ignore or forget or don't listen to with the carefulness and attention we should? How many times has he repeated himself that he was going to defeat death and nobody wasn't even on the radar? How many times has God spoken the truth to our heart and we just kind of blow over the top of it because we're not paying attention? These things are written that you might know. Well, if these things are written that you might know and you don't read, then, then you're doing that to yourself. But if these things are written that you might know and you just blow over the top of it and not pay attention, that's kind of on you. God desires that men would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. So Mary's uh, announcement, her startling announcement, arouses these two men to action. Verse 3, right? They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've laid him. Verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciples, and they were going to the tomb, and the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter. John's running faster than Peter. He came to the tomb first. Many have supposed that John was the youngest uh, of, of the uh, apostles the Lord calls to himself. We do know that he outlives all the other apostles. Maybe that's why he arrives there first, because he's younger. Uh, we don't know for certain. Verse 5. 
Stooping and looking in, he saw. The word is blepo. I'm going to make a point about this. He, he, he saw blepo. He just looked. He saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Verse 6, Simon Peter therefore also came following him and entered the tomb, and he beheld Theoreo. And he looked at, he gazed. Peter therefore also came following him, entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now, when you were younger and your mom would say something to you one, two, or three times, fourth time probably wasn't good, right? But the fact that she's repeating herself is trying to do what? Get your attention. Good. Well, some, at least one person in the room had a mom like I did. She's trying to get her attention before fourth came. She really got my attention then, right? But let's, look what it says here. Linen wrappings, linen wrappings, linen wrappings, and a face cloth. I don't know, maybe. Maybe John's tried to, trying to draw our attention to the linen wrappings. Maybe it's a clue. John, he saw, he blepoed, right? He just looked at the linen wrappings lying there. Peter also came, he entered the tomb, and he beheld, he theoreo, right? He looked, he gazed at, he, he thought, he wondered, theorized regarding the grave cloths uh, that, were, that he was seeing. Peter also came, look at the text, and they entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings, plural, lying there. Now again, these two men who dealt with the body of uh, the dead body of Jesus, they used nearly 100 pounds of aromatic powders and uh, this uh, gooey substance to wrap the body. Therefore, it's probably not unreasonable to suppose how that there are many yards of linen that had been used to employ to wrap the body of Christ in these strips of linen that, linen that were ascended. And again, the, quality, the quantity of the wrappings must uh, have been a, a great deal. I actually did a little search, like how much, how much linen cloth did they use to wrap an Egyptian mummy, right? Uh, we know that they took and did the same kind of thing, wrapped the bodies up like that. Uh, answers, hundreds of yards. Egyptian mummy, hundreds of yards of linen cloths, uh, 20 layers thick, if you ever need that answer for Jeopardy. All right. Now, also remember that just again, previous to the time that they murdered Jesus, uh, when Jesus went to, to Bethany, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Lazarus, who's been dead four days, walks out of the tomb. John chapter 11, verse uh, 43 says, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44, And he who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Unbind him. So the point is, he was wrapped with all these grave cloths. Verse 5 again, John, stooping and looking in, saw the linen wrappings lying there. Did not go in. Simon Peter, verse 6, therefore also came, followed him, entered into the tomb, when he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. Kimiai is the word. It means to be laid or to lie, and it's a word that is used elsewhere that speaks of order, things kept in order. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, entered the tomb. He beheld the linen wrappings lying there. Verse 7, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. 
So when these men look into the tomb, uh, they not only notice the body of Christ is not there, but they notice the linen wrappings. Their attention is drawn to them. Now, apparently, when Jesus, again, nobody witnesses the resurrection, but apparently when Jesus is resurrected, when life comes into his dead body, his, his glorified body passes right through the linen cloths that he's wrapped in, so uh, he, he's no longer there. And they weren't cast aside. He just kind of goes through them. I, I don't know how it happens. And, and instead, the weight of the, uh, on the wrappings, the weight of the spices just kind of collapse the wrappings all into one neat pile. Now, you would imagine that Peter, as he looks on the scene, his mind is whirling. He's trying to make sense of the evidence. If Jesus had revived, swooned, was actually not dead but in a coma, if Jesus had revived the normal way, then the drave cost would have been, right, disassembled like you disassemble at the end of the day, right? Stuff's going everywhere. It's not the way it is. It's laid there right on the slab, right in the nice, neat pile, just as it had been put there in the first place. On the other hand, if Jesus' body had been removed by some kind of grave robbers, as I think Mary Magdalene probably feared at first, it would be impossible to believe why the grave robbers would have left all these grave clothes in a nightly orderly pile. Therefore, the evidence, again, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, looking at the evidence of the grave cloths, is another impressive, forceful, powerful reality that John is trying to show us here in the text. John Phillips points out in his commentary, he says, in fact, the evidence of the resurrection based on the grave cloths is uh, in the position that they are lying is persuasive. Here in the empty tomb that has been described as the best attested fact of history, many legal scholars have scrutinized the evidence in light of legal standards. One of them, a famous English jurist, Sir Edward uh, Clark, wrote, As a lawyer, I have made a prolonged study of the evidence for the first Easter day. To me, the evidence is conclusive. And over and over again, in the high court, I have secured a verdict on evidence not nearly so compelling. The fact that the grave cloths are laying there undisturbed is an immensely important point, another proof again of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, the other disciples who saw, the other disciple who had first come into the tomb, again it's John, entered then also, and then here's the word, he saw and believed. Horao is the word there. It means to see with perception to comprehend, to, to understand. John's telling us based on the evidence, when he entered and looked at the tomb, he carefully considered the grave cloths lying there so neatly and so remarkably undisturbed where Jesus' body had rested. John is saying he realized there's only one logical, reasonable conclusion is that Jesus' body must have been raised to glory. Again, however it happens, passes right through these grave cloths. Just like later in the day and a week later, he'll pass right through uh, the closed doors of, a, uh, of where the disciples are. He passed right through the grave cloths, which is evidence of his resurrection. John Stott writes this. He says, a glance at these grave cloths proved the reality and 
uh, indicated the nature of the resurrection. Unlike Peter, who gazed at the scene wondering, John looked with faith and believed in the resurrection of Jesus in response to the evidence before him. We can imagine Peter standing over the grave cloth saying, I don't believe it. John, prompted by the evidence, came to realize what the Bible had been saying about Jesus and believed. John would have said, Christ is risen. The linen wrappings are lying there. Again, they're undisturbed. Verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Now again, everything is neat. Everything is orderly in the linen wrappings. Linen wrappings, plural, not a single cloth. Strips of cloth lying undisturbed. The body's gone out of the tomb. The head, of, the head cloth, the face cloth, is laying off by itself. None of the disciples had been there to steal the body. No one has said to have overcome the Roman soldiers and pillaged the tomb. And in either case, the bandages would no longer have been present, but they're there. Everything's folded up, and it's put in its proper place, and the Lord of glory is gone. He's departed from the tomb, and now he is gloriously, literally alive, physically alive. So again, the empty tomb is powerful evidence for the resurrection. Again, historically, no one has ever made, not even one of Christ's uh, uh, most ardent enemies, uh, uh, that the, the, the tomb was not empty, that the body's still there, and I saw it. No one said that. Again, they will in the book of uh, Matthew create a lie. The enemies of Christ will create a lie that, uh, again, proves the resurrection, saying that his disciples stole the body. But again, no one ever denied the historical reality the tomb is empty. And that's utterly significant. So how do you account for the body? That's the question. How do you account for the body? Well, maybe it was stolen, okay? Just, we'll just play what if. Maybe it was stolen by the enemies of Christ. Now, if that's true, if the enemies of Christ had stolen the body, all they have to do is produce the body somewhere later down the road where the disciples have been proclaiming that uh, Jesus had raised from the dead. All the enemies of Christ have to do to put it into all of that, to put it into Christianity, to put it into all this nonsense of him being raised from the dead. All the enemies of Jesus Christ have to do if they want to end the whole thing once and forever is produce the body, if they have it. But the reality is what? They don't. They don't have it. Well, maybe the disciples got it. You know, I don't know how these kind of stumbling, bumbling fishermen, I don't know how they got it. Maybe they, they did come uh, steal the body. If so, the question historically lies, would they be willing to die for a lie? Uh, they proclaimed that Jesus had raised from the dead, and they knew that that wasn't a reality. Would they proclaim that all their life and be willing to die for that lie? Now, maybe they would. I mean, some people are zealots and they do crazy things, but would you allow your family to suffer promoting a lie that you knew was a lie? Would you allow your family to suffer for something you knew was not true? Because not one single disciple ever recanted their story. Not one disciple ever came forward and said, look, the whole thing was a fake, a forgery. Uh, they, they created a lie, a ruse on people. Every one of these men went to their death proclaiming the fact that Jesus Christ indeed defeated death. So again, how do you account for the body? It's kind of an important part of the story, right? How do you account for it? He's dead. Everybody knows it. He's in this tomb. Everybody knows it. How do you account for the body? Well, the only adequate explanation for the empty tomb is the reality that Jesus Christ, just like the Bible teaches what? Defeated death. 
just like the eyewitnesses proclaim. Jesus defeated death. It's the only adequate explanation for the empty tomb, for the missing body. He defeated death. The linen wrappings were there again undisturbed. The face cloth, which had been on its head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but on his head, not laying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up by its place. Now, look, you can't read more into the text than what it says. There's a bunch of people that like to put these fanciful theories forward. Somehow the grave cloths were lying there and kind of like a big cocoon. You know, it's still got a dimension to it and a thing like that. And just somehow the body got sucked up. It doesn't say that. I would imagine because of gravity and the cloths and, and the weight of the spices, 100 pounds on those cloths, it just collapsed. But it's all in order. That's the issue. Right? It's not some kind of cocoon thing. It's just they're all there in an orderly manner. And I'm going to run a little bit of tangent here. I told you I was going to do this last week. Again, look, look what the text says. Beheld the linen, what? Plural, wrappings lying there. The face cloth, which had been on his head, not uh, lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled in a place by itself, right? Linen wrappings, face cloth separate. I told you last time, if you're one of the people who have uh, believed the, in the so-called Shroud of Turin, that is the actual burial cloth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Graciously, I say to you, you're mistaken. Even though Pope Paul VI described the shroud to be the most important relic in the history of Christianity. So why is it not genuine? I can prove it to you from the text. The Shroud of Turin, if you don't know anything about it, I'll give you some background. The Shroud of Turin is one piece of cloth. It's about 14 feet long by three and a half feet wide. And it never appeared historically until the mid-14th century, somewhere around 1360 A.D. So there's no historical record of this supposedly amazing burial cloth until 1,300 years after the death of Jesus Christ. That's a little bit odd in itself, right? You'll notice nowhere in the text of Scripture did we read uh, that the, uh, the disciples say, hey, let's grab the cloth, the cloth, singular, right, and, and keep it. Man, if we grab the cloth and keep it, maybe we can put it on display somewhere down the road and, you know, uh, turn it into a road show. It doesn't say that. And I just told you the Shroud of Turin, whatever in the world that is, the Shroud of Turin, that, that it contains allegedly the entire imprint of the body of Christ from, head, or from face to feet is what? One piece of cloth. 14 uh, feet long, three and a half feet wide. However, the, several times the New Testament speaks of the burial cloths of the Lord Jesus Christ in the plural, not the singular. Cloth plural. They wrapped him, not cloth singular, laying it over top of him. And again, we have uh, just read here in John's version of the story that there was also a head covering that was different from the other wrappings, like a small handkerchief separate from the rest of the wrappings. And again, the shroud of turn is one piece. It was common in the day of Christ and his burial to cover, not to cover the neck, but to cover the face. Again, in, in the biblical text, you have two wrappings. You have that set of cloth, and you have the other one, uh, the face covering, not one solid piece as in the shroud. Supposedly, the imprint on the shroud, I'm sure you've seen it at some point, is said to have contained bloodstains from Christ's body. Uh, the image on the shroud, according to one theory, was produced by a chemical reaction of the embalming spices, uh, along with Jesus' sweat, or else evaporate, uh, vapors escaping his body in the initial state of decomposition. That's what uh, they say generated the image. Well, uh, again, the only problem with that theory is it's not biblical. I mean, other than that, it's a good one, but it's not biblical. It goes completely against the text of Scripture. 
Scripture again says there were many cloths to use to wrap the body of Christ, not one. In accordance with Jewish custom of purification, dead bodies, like the body of Jesus Christ, would have been washed and cleansed before wrap. Therefore, there's not going to leave any uh, stains on the cloth, blood stains on the cloth. And a little tiny one, uh, in Psalm 16:10, it says that God promises that the dead body of his son will see no decay in the tomb. So vapors coming off a decomposing body aren't making, I don't know what makes the image on that cloth, but it's not the person of Jesus Christ. And if you hold any validity to uh, radiocarbon dating, small piece, a little bit of fibers were taken at one point and sampled and tested, and the Shroud of Turin turned out to be created somewhere between 1260 and 1390 A.D. So I don't want to burst your bubble, but there's no way to harmonize what the Bible teaches, the biblical evidence regarding the actual burial cloths of the person of Jesus Christ with the image on the Shroud of Turin. Uh, Shroud of Turin. Again, these things, these, these supposed evidences do not produce faith. Faith comes by, I'm sorry, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You've got to understand the Roman Catholic Church is infamous for doing these kind of things. They want to try to, quote-unquote, prove the validity of their system. So they have the Shroud of Turin. They have fragments from a, a dead saint. They have fingernail clippings of somebody else and stuck in a box, and, and it's worshipped by people. And, and I've actually seen that in the Orthodox Church uh, when I've been in Russia. Long lines of people. What are they in line for? I mean, just long lines of people. There's something up here in the front. And there is a box. There's, there's a little bone fragment, the fingertip of Saint somebody. And they're worshiping these things. Evidence is not the issue. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We don't need tangible evidence to prove the reality and the, the, the reliability of the scripture. The historical accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the scripture are true because the Bible is who? Who does the Bible belong to? It belongs to God. The Bible is God's word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith is God's gift to you if you're a believer. God proves God. And again, I said all that at the beginning. Stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there. He did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came following him into the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb entered and also saw and believed. Verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Now at, at this point it's not clear whether Peter also believed. John believes. You, know, you look at Luke 10, 24, uh, it suggests perhaps that Peter at this point, still marveling at what happened, still wondering what happened, he doesn't understand to the level that John does. So whether in a state of belief or a state of bewilderment, verse 10 says, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. So here in the context of the first 10 verses, the stage is set for the Lord Jesus Christ to appear. And that's what he's going to do. And when he appears, that's going to erase all doubt concerning whether or not the resurrection really happened. So again, it's Mary Magdalene who's going to have the great privilege of being the first person to whom the Lord appears after his uh, victory over uh, the grave and death. All right, there we go. Our Father, we're so thankful for this time in your word this morning. 
thankful for, again, the historical truth that you have left for us as your pale men of flesh fallen. Uh, you've made promises in your word, and your word is truth. So help us to rest on that truth, not on our own uh, understanding, but just uh, fallen, but on your uh, unfailing word. And, and thank you for the great love that you have shown us by wanting us to know the truth and all the little hidden things in the text that just uh, continue to encourage our heart that Jesus Christ literally physically died. Jesus Christ literally physically defeated death. He's gone before us. When death comes for us, we don't have to fear because our Savior has been there and conquered it and promises that because he has risen to life, we who love him and know him will be raised to eternal life. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.